This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by The Good Book Company, publisher of 12 Things God Can't Do by Nick Tucker. We tend to think about what God can do, but this book explores 12 things that God can't do to show us aspects of His nature and character, which we can embrace with relief and celebrate with joy. Enter the promo code 12THINGS to get 25% off at thegoodbook.com. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, you'll hear a message from Juan Sanchez. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 National Conference. say a word of welcome to those of you who are in the room and to those of you who are watching online right now. Uh, My name is Juan Sanchez. I'm the senior pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and uh, I'm also uh, a member of the Gospel Coalition Council, and it's a a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, we're going to work through some things really, really fast, so buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go through some scriptures. I want to establish some foundations and then end up talking about some practical steps that we can take in the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for the Spirit's help. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to gather. For those of us who have been able to gather in person, what a great joy and privilege to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, singing praises to our Lord and hearing the word of God preached. Father, we do not take it lightly that we were not meant to be alone and isolated, and it is a great joy for us. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are not yet able to meet with us, and for our brothers and sisters throughout the nation who are not even able to meet together as churches. Father, would you eradicate this virus? Would you uh, allow us to gather together as churches in totality sooner rather than later and protect us from this virus as we navigate through hallways and airplanes and even back home. Our Lord, our God, now give us grace to understand your word and to think about your design for leadership in the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So once again, welcome. I want to talk about developing leaders in the church. And where I want to land is what I call the leadership formula. Uh, I wrote a book detailing all this and how we think through this at our church. I think it might be at the bookstore. But I'm going to run through some things really fast because I've done a lot of work in there. 
But what I want to talk about is, is first of all, the, the pattern of leadership in the scripture. When I came to High Point Baptist Church uh, almost 16 years ago now, I remember meeting with the elders and uh, in the interview process, they asked me, one, what, what would be your greatest concern about High Point Baptist Church? And my, my response to them was, my greatest concern is in this room. My greatest concern is the elders. How the elders go, so will the church. Also, if we're united in heart and mind and vision and voice, it won't matter what crises are happening in the congregation, we can lead them through it. But it doesn't matter how great things look in the church, if we're not united in heart and mind and voice, then the church itself will end up fracturing. And we see this in the scriptures, don't we? We see how as Israel's king went, so did Israel. When they had good kings, they did well. When they had poor kings, they did poorly. But the pattern of leadership, I think, is established in Genesis 1. We're going to go to a lot of scriptures, and I'm not going to comment on all of them. I might just highlight some of them. But I do want to start out by reading Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is where I think the, the pattern for leadership is established. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now there's a lot to unpack as far as the image of God. But my point is just simply this God created us as his image. We are God's representative rulers on the earth, male and female. We are equal as image bearers, but we have distinct roles. As we see in Genesis 2, the man was created first, and the woman was created to help the man. And God's original intention from the very beginning was to show his rule and his reign through humanity, through a faithful humanity, who would reproduce the image of God and spread it until the whole earth was filled with the glory of God. And that's what we see here, isn't it? And what we see is, is God's image. I would just kind of highlight a number of things that the image entails. Number one, it entails sonship. Number two, it entails priesthood. In Genesis 2, we realize that the man was created and, and placed in the garden to guard it and to keep it. That's priestly language. That's what the priests did. They, they kept guard in the presence of God, the tabernacle and the sanctuary. Um, so sonship, priestship, but also kingship. And so I think what the pattern that we see here is that God had created humanity for the purpose of sonship, kingship and priesthood in a covenant relationship for the purpose of mission. And so that's what we see here, that the, the, the leadership pattern here is male and female, equality is image bearers, but male leadership and female help, we see that in the marital relationship, don't we? But, but here's the point where I want to go with this. The point is the pattern is established here of a royal priesthood. And what we see is a series of 
When there's sin, God does not give up on this. He brings another Adam. And so when there's sin, sin runs rampant. God judges. He literally cleans the earth with water. And he starts with a new Adam, Noah. As sin increases in Genesis 11, God judges. He divides people and disperses them. What do we see? Abraham, a new Adam. And from Abraham, he creates Israel, which is a corporate Adam, Exodus 19, a royal priesthood, a holy people. And so this is the pattern that's established. God has established, has designed from the very beginning to display his rule and reign through humanity, through a faithful, godly humanity that represents his rule over the earth. The leadership problem is sin, isn't it? And in Genesis 3.16, we see this problem, particularly as it relates to the man and the woman. In verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so what we see is this, this male-female relationship where there's equality as image, but distinction in roles that are complementary, we see now a desire for control, the man seeking to control and put the woman in her place, and the woman seeking to control and to drive the man. And this is not unique to male-female relationships, but the leadership problem is one of, I think, two extremes, I don't want to reduce it to that, but one extreme would be domination, tyranny, overbearing, and then the other extreme is passivity. So this is the leadership problem that we see in scripture. And of course, in Genesis 3.15, we see the promise of good news that the woman will bear a child that will resolve the sin issue and crush the serpent's head. And we know that to be Jesus. And Jesus is the last Adam right? He is the true son, the true priest, and the true king who establishes a new covenant and and creates a people on the basis of of this new covenant for the purpose of mission. And what is that mission? To reproduce the image of God until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Isn't that glorious? Just to think about how constant God is, how he's established patterns, and he is the one by his word who shows us. And so Jesus Christ died and rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has been given rule and authority over all things. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as a true image of the invisible God, Jesus is at work by his word and by his spirit to create this people, this new covenant people who are to reflect the image of God. Now, look at Ephesians 4.11 with me. And what I want you to see is that this Jesus, who is the true image of the invisible God, is creating a corporate Adam. Just as Israel was a corporate Adam, Jesus is creating a corporate Adam. What I mean by that, he's creating a royal priesthood, a people that represent his rule on the earth and that image him, that display who our God is, what he is like, what it's like to live under his rule. And in Ephesians 4.11, we see that the ascended Christ has structured his church for this mission. 
I'm going to pick up in verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets, they're the foundation of the church. They're the ones that have received the revelation of the Father that Jesus is the Christ. And evangelists, these are the ones that spread this gospel message. And the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see what God is doing? The image wasn't lost in the fall, it was distorted. And in Christ, God is restoring the pattern. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. The whole purpose of what we see here in Ephesians 4, the ministry of the word, is it goes out, it calls the dead to life, it gathers the elect, and it's, it works to transform them to look more and more like Jesus. How do we do that? Verse 16, uh, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ. So, all that to say that the mission hasn't changed. God is seeking to reproduce his image until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. In Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus is building his church, gathering people, and conforming them to, the, to, to his own image, to the image of God. And the ascended Christ has gifted the church shepherds by which he leads his church. The ascended Christ has also given us the qualifications for this kind of leadership. And so, so what we see is that as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, he is to identify, he's to look for faithful men who are able to teach others also. And in the New Testament, that able to teach others also is, a, is a, like a key phrase that indicates pastors, eldership. And so we have some qualifications here. In 1 Timothy 3, and I'll trust you to go through this uh, on your own because our time is running quickly. But I want you to notice in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the Bible emphasizes character over competency and over charisma. The Bible emphasizes character over competency or charisma. Again, let me just read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And I want you to listen, just listen as I read for the emphasis on character. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. There's that phrase that distinguishes elders or pastors from deacons. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare, a snare of the devil. So notice how the Bible emphasizes character over competency or charisma. And, and we saw this back with David, right? When David was anointed, 
You know, little David, his brothers are passed over and God tells Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. One of the great dangers that we see throughout ministry and the, the moral failures and, and the ministry crises that we see throughout evangelicalism, you have to wonder if competency or charisma was elevated over character. And so it's important as we think about raising the next generation of leaders that we don't fall prey to the danger or the trap of being impressed with sparkly speech or magnetic personalities and we pass over character. But secondly, not just character, conviction. Leaders must be convictional. Beware of sentimentalism or the fear of man. What I mean by sentimentalism is something that on the outside appears like love but is missing truth. We must speak the truth in love. We must lead with love and truth. We cannot separate love and truth. But the fear of man is a terrible thing in leadership and we all probably struggle with it. But we want to raise up leaders that are people of conviction. In fact, look at Titus 1, Titus 1, 9 through 16. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There must be a knowledge of scripture, there must be an understanding of scripture, an ability to apply scripture to difficult situations and to hold firm to it, so that purpose he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, that's a positive aspect, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. So our, our leaders within the church must be people of conviction. And as we're raising leaders and church planters and pastors, they must be men of conviction, not men who are, who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine or by every cultural wind. They must be able to stand firm and hold firm in the faith. So character, secondly, conviction, but thirdly, care. It's important that leaders care for the congregation. I take this from 1 Peter 5. In 1 Peter 5, 1, Peter says it this way. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Let me just say a word. Raise your hand if you're a pastor. Are you a Okay, great, wonderful. Brothers, let me just say a word of encouragement to you. Pastor the church God has called you to, not the church you wish he had called you to, right? Don't pastor Mark Dever's church, don't pastor John Piper's church, don't pastor John MacArthur's church, pastor the flock of God among you. Get to know the people, get to love the people, get to care for the people, smell like the sheep, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, there's the leadership problem over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I think this is part of what it means to, to live above reproach. We're to live our lives in such a way that we should be able to tell our congregation, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Follow my husbanding as I follow Christ. Follow my parenting as I follow Christ. Follow my walk as I follow Christ. We're to live our lives in such a way that we live as examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. One of the things that's important for us is we look out in the congregation for what we call elder trajectory guys, is we wanna make sure that we're identifying guys that love the church. One of the indications they love the church is they actually gather with us. They actually gather with the church when we gather. One of the other indicators that they love the church and they care for the church, on their own, they don't need a title, but they're discipling other men. They're caring for members in the congregation. They love the widows and you know, they love the senior adults. They love the young people. Um, they're going out of their way to encourage other people And it's important for us to see that as we're trying to identify elder trajectory guys, that we want to see them eldering before they're actually named as elders. And then this becomes a key component that they're actually caring for the church of Christ. And then number four, competency. So the Bible emphasizes character over competency but it doesn't completely discount competency, right? And the the competency piece, what I mean by that, is able to teach. That's the key phrase that we find in scripture. But I wanna take you to 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, because there's also a manner in which we're to teach. 2 Timothy 2, beginning of verse 24, Paul says it this way, and the Lord's servant, I think he's talking about, again, pastors here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. There you see that phrase? When you see that phrase, I take Paul to be talking about elders or pastors or bishops. Those three titles are interchanged, uh, used interchangeably in scripture. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may, have, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, later in, in the third chapter, Paul's gonna warn to avoid such men who are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So this is the dilemma of leadership, isn't it? It's we have to be patient, we have to be kind, compassionate, we have to shepherd that God may lead some to repentance, but then there are some people that when we realize they seem to be always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, they're divisive, they should never be in leadership. Avoid such men. I actually take that to mean church discipline, to, to follow these people in church discipline and they continue down this path. So one of the dilemmas of leadership is that we're to be competent, but not just competent in, in theology and the scriptures, we have to be competent in that. But I think it means more than that. We have to be competent in our ability to teach with gentleness, teach with patience, teach with love and compassion. And uh, one of the dangers here is that, you know, there are those people that they know the scriptures in and out, they know theology, 
and they, they love theology and they love crowds, but they don't love people. They love the idea of getting in front of the church and teaching, but they don't love people. And so what we see from scripture is this idea of the qualifications are character, conviction, care, competency. Now, here's what I would propose to you. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 22 through 25. Here's what I would propose to you. These qualities, character, conviction, care, and competency are to be observed over time. Now, Paul's already warned us of this, right? Don't elevate someone as a young convert. But I think there's more to be said than just that. Here's my argument for slow processes in in elevating people to leadership. First Timothy 5, beginning verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I'm gonna skip to verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Received a call one time from a pastor in town and he gave me a call and he, it was a, a new church plan. You know, they were somewhat fragile. He said, hey Juan, I just met with this guy and um, he will either be an amazing elder or a wolf. And I don't know which, so I'm sending him to your church. <laughs> and I said, well, thanks a lot. And uh, the, the man came, the very first Sunday shook my hand and the, the words out of his mouth after his name, I want to be an elder. He had a desire, and, and we didn't discount that. In fact, we sought to be patient with him. But the slow processes over time reveal the fact that he was in love with the idea of teaching and preaching, actually just preaching. And he just wanted a platform to preach. And he didn't really want to care for the flock. So my fellow brothers, let me just encourage you to take advantage of slow processes. Slow processes will eventually reveal sin that's not present there, but also slow processes reveal good things too. Look at the rest, verse 25. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So this is, let me give you the leadership formula. Here it is. Character plus conviction plus care plus competency over time equals credibility. Okay, this is not, uh, I, I just take this right from scripture and we've put this in this kind of formula. It's not a mathematical formula. If you're one of those that it, it must be mathematical, then you can do it this way. Character plus conviction plus care plus competency, put that in a parentheses, and then multiply that by time, and that equals credibility. I'm a, a, a music undergraduate, not a math. I avoided math with every fiber of my being, but if you're one of those people, you can rewrite it that way. But here's the point. As we think about identifying leaders in the church and raising up the next generation of leaders in the church, we have to... We have to maintain true to scripture that emphasizes character over competency and charisma. We want, we want men of conviction that know the word, but are also able to teach it and to rebuke. 
but we want men who love the church and that are able to teach, faithful men who are able to teach. That's, that's what Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And observed over time, that equals credibility. So here's how it should look like. In, it, this is what it looks like in our church. By the time that we present a candidate for eldership to the congregation, they should be willing to say, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. Because the congregation has been observing over time. So how do we do that? How do we leave a legacy, leadership legacy, as, as Paul urges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2? Let me give you seven practical ways to do this. These are not magical. They're not the only ways. These are just some helpful ways, I think. You could probably add to them or tweak these or make these better. Mark Dever in the book Discipling has, uh, uh, I can't remember if it's the last chapter, an appendix on raising up leaders. He has some similar points. So here are the ones that I want to give you. Number one, model. Model faithful, loving, biblical leadership and authority in the church. By your leadership, lead by example. Model faithful, biblical, loving leadership and authority. Remember the leadership problem? Either domineering, controlling, or passive. We want to show people, we want to show our congregation that authority is a good thing. One of the things that I think this last year has caused, and maybe you sense it in in your churches, one of the things that I think this last year has caused for congregations, it has created a culture of suspicion of authority. We're suspicious of governing authorities. We're suspicious of medical authorities. And that culture of suspicion of authority has crept into the church. One of the ways that we fight that is by modeling faithful, loving, biblical leadership, not domineering, loving, by example, willing. And so that's number one. Number two, I'll move here a little bit more quickly. Cultivate a culture of discipleship. Cultivate a culture of discipleship. One of the things that you see about the qualifications of of an elder is that there's nothing extraordinary. There really is nothing extraordinary about the qualifications of elders. Basically, it's to be a faithful Christian, to live above reproach, and to be competent to teach. So that competency to teach is what distinguishes the office of elder from the office of deacon. Otherwise, it's virtually the same kind of character, conviction, care, and competency in other ways, but that ability to teach is what distinguishes elders from deacons. And so we want to cultivate a culture of discipleship. We want to have an Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 ministry where the word is preached and that word that is preached goes to the congregation. The congregation receives that word and then they speak that word to one another, whether it's through Sunday school classes or through through small groups, whether it's at home, mom and dad with the kids, whether it's a group of college students. This word, the word that is preached to the whole congregation, it is like the rudder of the ship of the congregation. It's gonna shape the congregation. We want that word to go out. And then we want to equip our people to speak that word to one another in love. As Mark Dever says in his book, Discipling, to help one another follow Jesus. 
That's what we're doing. I would simply add this, to help one another follow Jesus so that we would look more like Jesus. I mean, that's the point, right? The image of God, that we would reflect the image of God. So we want to develop a culture where, where discipleship is normal. People are getting together individually, one-on-one, in small groups, however, however you do that. And, and that book, Discipling, I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy. It's like a practical handbook to develop a culture of discipleship in the church. Number three. Always, always, always have your radar on for potential leaders. Don't wait to look for leaders when there's a leadership deficit or a leadership need. You have to always have your radar on, looking out for those potential leaders in the church. Use the leadership formula as a guide to help you see who's doing what, who's caring for the church, who's discipling, people of character, uh, people of, of, uh, of conviction. And then to those of you who are pastors, here's what I would say to you. We do this in our elders meetings, every elders meetings, we, we just have a, a list of guys that are on our radar and we just talk about them. And we wanna make sure, okay, if these guys are on our radar, which one of you elders is meeting with him? So we want to make sure that there's an intentional culture of discipleship in a church, but that the elders are leading by example, identifying these guys. Now, if you are a pastor, you're the lone pastor of a church, and you're all alone, this is so vital that you identify young men. And they could be very, very green, but you begin to invest in them and spend time with them, read with them, show them how to read the scriptures. But pastors, you need to disciple elder trajectory men. Invest in those men. Number four, invite them into your life. Invite them into your life. There are informal ways of doing this. Hey, let's go grab some coffee. Um, I just wanna, just wanna talk to you, see how you're doing. Um, hey, let's go, let's go take a walk. There are a lot of informal ways. Are you free for breakfast? Or you know, are you able to get some lunch? I just wanna to get to know you a little bit better. Invite them into your life, invite them into your home. There's some formal ways of doing this as well, whether it's a formal internship that you have in the church. And look, sometimes these things sound very complicated, but, but it's not. It, it could be a young college student in your church and you just invite them into your life. And you say, hey, would you be willing to, just over the next six months, I have a reading list that I'd like to develop. You wanna just work that? with me let's just do that together and we can meet on mondays at you know whenever uh just to discuss the reading and just to you know invite invite them into your life uh, an internship can be more formal as well where you bring young men into the church and they're observing what you're doing in the church you can even bring them into your home if you're able i just asked my wife if we could do this uh, my youngest is 18, she just graduated from high school, and uh, my wife said, okay, we'll do that, but, but give me six months. I just wanna know what it feels like to be just the two of us in the house. And, and she said, and after that, great, we'll, we'll do that. And I'm excited about that, we've never done that before. I don't know how it'll work, we may never do it again. But the idea of having some young men living with us in a house that used to be, I have five daughters, used to be filled with girls, I mean, it'll be a whole new learning experience for us. But there are different ways of doing that, bringing young people into your life. 
or pastoral assistantships, identifying an elder trajectory guide, someone that desires to pursue ministry, and you just hire them to be a pastoral assistant, you know, to do some administrative work in, around the church, but then also to observe how the leaders lead in the church. Um, that was number four. Number five, equip biblically qualified leadership candidates. Equip, equip, equip. Train them to handle the biblical text. Uh, one of the ministries that's excellent at this is the Charles Simeon Trust. If you've never attended a Charles Simeon Trust workshop, I would highly recommend it when it comes to your area. They just teach you how to rightly handle the word of God. And pastors, you go to it, and then you take those principles and you take some men through it. We did this on Sunday afternoons uh, for about a year or so. We just worked through 1 Timothy. And so we, we opened it to all the men in the congregation. So all the men who want to learn how to rightly handle the word of God, we broke them up into small groups in, uh, in, on Sunday afternoons from four to five. Uh, we just had little small groups that worked through the biblical text, just trying to equip guys to, uh, to rightly handle the word of God. Um, we also did it one time with a book study, and uh, we just an hour before our elders meetings, we just invited all the guys. And, and what was in my mind is, okay, our elders meet on this night of the week. And I, I want to see what guys were available that night of the week. And so we just, we just did a study, a, you know, a theological study. That night, we broke the guys into tables. I would teach from the front, and then they would discuss among the, the groups. And we had different uh, elders lead each of those tables. There are lots of ways that you can equip men to rightly handle the biblical text and to understand theology, but then give them opportunities to teach. Give them opportunities to teach. It might be a Sunday school lesson, maybe just one or two. Uh, observe and then provide some feedback. It could be a devotional for the youth. It could be teaching at children's ministry. It could be just teaching one lesson and to give feedback. I guarantee you, if someone can teach children, they can teach adults. I think teaching children is the hardest thing to do. I did my student teaching in an elementary school and a middle school, and the middle school was a piece of cake. But um, those children require your attention the whole time. And so just expose, expose um, the people that you're training to these opportunities. It could be a Sunday evening devotional. It could be a nursing home that's looking for someone to come in and preach on Sundays. I mean, there's a variety of opportunities. One of the things that one pastor does is he calls up the, the funeral home and says, look, if you ever have someone that, that doesn't have a pastor, let me know and we'll provide someone to preach that funeral. So just be creative in the different opportunities that you can expose people to. And then observe and give feedback. Observe and give feedback. This cultivates a culture of humility when you give godly encouragement and receive godly encouragement and when you give godly criticism and receive godly criticism. You know, I think one of the, one of the missing factors in churches and in church leadership is the ability to give godly criticism and to receive godly criticism. You know, too many people are just crushed by any kind of negative critique 
And if all we do is pat people on the back, we're actually not helping them grow and mature. And so we need to learn how to give godly encouragement, how to receive godly encouragement ourselves, and how to give godly criticism and to receive godly criticism ourselves. And the way to do that, pastors, is to to you be the example. You know, maybe have a group of people talk about the service and then talk about your sermon and you're just standing, you're sitting there or standing there or whatever and everyone's talking about the sermon, offering you critique and you're receiving it well, receiving it in a godly way. You're not defending yourself. You're not <laughs> responding. You just say, thank you. Thank you for that. That's helpful. Or I didn't realize that. So number six delegate responsibilities. You have to trust and give people opportunities for leadership to be exercised. And this requires risk. It's the same in parenting, isn't it? What we want to do is we want to create an environment where it is safe to fail, where it is safe to fall on your face, where it is safe to to give a devotional and completely miss the point and say, hey, brother, thank you for your effort. Now, can I share with you what this text is about? Or just ask questions. Okay, how did you arrive at that point? And just slowly shepherd. But but we have to we have to delegate. We have to give authority away. We have to give away our leadership and our authority when possible and be willing to take risks. And then number seven, affirm or send out biblical leaders. Either affirm in your congregation or send out from your congregation faithful men who are able to teach others also. This has to be a regular activity in the life of the church. You want to continually raise up leaders in order to leave a gospel legacy. One of the things that I've told our congregation from the very beginning is just the reality that I'm, I'm preparing High Point for life after Juan. Okay, you, don't, you don't need one to be here forever, but I want them to be prepared for life after one. One of the ways that I do that is I bring preachers to come in and preach in my place. In the month of July, we have a July preaching series where we just bring guys that are much better preachers than I am so that the congregation can realize, okay, Juan's okay, he's good, but he's faithful and he's able to teach, so we'll keep him. The idea is we don't want to create a dependency upon us. A a sign of poor leadership is that when you leave, the things deteriorate and fall apart. Some people like that. But but the reality is, is we have not prepared our people if when we leave, they don't know what to do. So we have to continually raise up leaders to leave a gospel legacy because this was Paul's concern. Is he right, 2 Timothy? His life was done. His ministry was over. He had run the race. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you got to pass this on to others. To others who are faithful, who are able to teach others also. Because you'll be there one day too. Remember in chapter 2, he tells Timothy the same thing. Run the race. Fight the good fight. So brothers, if the Lord tarries, we will be gone. So what are we doing right now to prepare our churches for life after us? So we wanna leave a gospel legacy, but also this will serve your church 
it will serve other churches as well. Because sometimes the Lord moves elders, right? Moves families to other cities or other churches in the city. And you will have equipped faithful men who are able to teach others also and bless other churches, whether it's in your city or somewhere else. And thirdly, this will bless church plants. This will allow you, this this leadership pipeline will allow you to be generous in church planting because there won't be a leadership deficit. You won't be afraid of sending elders off with a church plan because you're continually raising up elders. Brothers and sisters, uh, thank you for your time. I I hope this has been helpful and and I hope this has been encouraging to you. Listen to Paul as he talks to Timothy. We must identify faithful men who are able to teach others also that we may leave a gospel legacy so that this gospel will continue to be proclaimed until Christ returns. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your faithfulness in revealing these truths to us. And now, Father, I pray for my brother pastors, my fellow brother pastors. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray this is an encouragement to them. And Father, remind us that slow and steady and faithful wins the race. And grant us patience in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.